This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back, everybody. We are in the studio today with a super special guest. I say that every episode, but I think today it might be a super duper special guest our beloved co-host Patrick Ballsley, as I like to call P-Balls, is going to be sharing his story today. <laughs> Holy cow. Holy cow. I've heard bits and pieces. I know I know the uh, the gory details, but I don't know the back end of things. I don't know how he, you know, got it together, transitioned out, create a purpose in life, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I can't, w- I, I literally cannot wait to hear this. Patrick is a brother of mine. He's a, he's a new brother of mine. You know, we're fairly new friends, but he is my right-hand man in this, this venture that we're calling a podcast. And he is my, my voice of reason, my He's the Buddha to my Tasmanian devil. I am, I'm everywhere, and he's, and he's grounded. It's an absolute pleasure to have him be a part of this, this whole project Aww. and to dig into to his life experience and how he got to where he is now, which is just an absolutely inspirational and respectable man, uh, is going to be fascinating and, and motivating and inspiring and touching and all the above. And... Our other beloved co-host, Sam Hampson, is going to be doing the interview, and I am equally as excited about that. Anybody want to chime in on on what you're excited about? I'm nervous. I feel like I have a huge task ahead of me here to try to pull back the curtain on all the things. Like, if you know Patrick and you interact with him regularly, you feel his recovery. You feel the depth of the work that he's done to become the man he is today, but my job today is to try to figure out how to expose that information. Yes. How do I get him to share that with you guys and what it actually looked like and how to do it yourself? So I got my work cut out for me today. Yeah, I hope I don't disappoint. Let's, let's, let's get this thing going. If I if I know you like I think it do, you're a you're a you're a straight shooter and you're authentic and you're as genuine as they come. So I imagine that will come out in every word you say as it normally does. So as co-host, this was one of the things that we decided to include moving forward was taking a little bit of a deeper dive into each of our stories and even into some of the guest stories that we bring on. And the reason behind that is when we're really wanting to create a world where people are open and willing to share about their experience with alcohol, with any other substance or other numbers and medicators, one of the things I think we have to be willing to do is model that and demonstrate it if that's really never been something that is part of our community, part of our family system, part of something that we've seen. So today as we dive into Patrick's story, my hope is really that anyone who has shared any type of similar struggle or any type of similar experience in recovery, in sobriety, in mindfulness, just bringing much more awareness to your daily life, that this will help add in some language, maybe give you some perspective and really see the power of being able to heal through others' stories and not always having to do all of the work yourself. I think there's something really powerful about being able to heal in connection and feel connected to parts of someone's story and parts of someone's hope that you may not have ever experienced and you may not have to to benefit from it. I love that. Make sure you've got your supports around you. Just a small trigger warning there for anyone that has experienced addiction or has had substance use in their life. All right. Let's jump in. Here we go. Patrick Ballsley, everybody. So I want to kind of start off by just um, exploring a little bit of the the background, your family system, culture, heritage, kind of what what was substance use like in your world early on. And I know that you have told your story many times, so I will let you kind of take the reins on where you want to start us off here. Most families, I mean, almost started out like this, but alcoholism and addiction's been around. <laughs> 
for a very long time. I, I don't want to sit here and say that alcoholism and addiction is like rampant on both sides of my family, but it's definitely in there. And I don't want to dig too much into that other than the fact that I know that, you know, I was genetically predisposed to having a high probability of a substance use disorder. And you know that because it was shared with you? Um, Yeah, it's been shared with me since I've been in recovery. It wasn't something that was talked about a lot growing up. Um, that just weren't mm. really the kind of conversations that we had around alcohol. But, you know, my, my mom's side of the family, Irish Catholic, um, you know, hardworking, the, some, you know, alcoholism down the line same same with my dad's family you know it it wasn't like prevalent it's not like I remember as a kid like seeing a lot of alcohol use in in my extended family to the point where I was like this is an issue Um, it wasn't Mm -hmm. anything that I saw as a problem or scary or you know, I didn't see any abuse or neglect. It wasn't, you know, it's like, yeah, they just like to have a good time and like to have fun and drink. And, you know, I never saw any violence or anything like that. But, you know, when it comes to my uh, immediate family, like my dad and his two brothers, plug real quick for Arthur's Restaurant and Wine Shop, South Park. <laughs> um, now, my dad and his two brothers started a restaurant and wine shop back in 1972 here in Charlotte called Arthur's and uh you know next year they'll be celebrating their 50th year in business and um you know the 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 wine shop was a big part of the deal and uh alcohol was part of our family culture you know it was it was kind of always around always at family dinners it was something that you know my dad's our family business was was ingrained in it was it was normalized and it wasn't normalized in a way that, like, out, quote unquote, alcoholism was normalized. It was just like, you know, we, we, we work hard and we drink, and it doesn't really pose much of a problem. So, like, I, I didn't see alcohol use as an issue growing up on either side of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it looked like fun to me. You know, so I grew up. I grew up here in Charlotte. My dad's business was successful. Uh, you know, when I when I was born you know they were doing really well financially and the business was rocking I think they had 13 stores at one point my mom worked part-time I think and then like as you know more responsibility came with with me um I was an only child um you know she became a stay-at-home mom and um you know my dad worked a lot and uh being an only child and growing up in the 80s like I spent a lot of time outside exploring um, with neighborhood kids, uh, a lot of them were, were older than me, um, so I kind of I, I got exposed to a lot of stuff that I probably shouldn't have at that age. Um, but I I always felt this like I don't know this I don't want to say sadness, but and and I'm sure that if you're an only child and you're listening to this, you can probably relate. You know, I, I just I felt alone a lot of the times and. I didn't know that mm-hmm. until I've like dug in with like my recovery stuff and, and therapy that, that there was like a, a sense of loneliness and sadness that, that probably drove a lot of my use um, early on. But yeah, I, I remember, um, and, and I'll tell you the first time, like, and I, and I always tell this story when I share because I think it's really, um, really important. I don't know, I was probably seven or eight years old and I was swimming at the, at the swimming pool right by our house. And uh, <laughs> I don't want to get I don't want to get too graphic, but I, I I was in the pool, and I was probably seven, and I realized that if I stayed in front of the jets in the pool for long enough, um, it would do something to me that felt really good. And essentially, I had my first orgasm at seven years old, and that was the first time in my life that I realized that there was something that I could do that could immediately changed the way that I felt mm-hmm. and um that became quite the uh quite the summer um <laughs> with, I was in the pool a lot and um and, uh, and and the crazy thing is is that like nobody really knew what was going on like I was keeping this to myself and there, there wasn't any like shame involved in it at least that that I can remember but it was like wow this is awesome like I can do this and it takes like a couple minutes and it makes me feel really good. Mm-hmm. What I didn't know at the time um, was that 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 behavior was priming 
my brain for what was to come. And it was mm-hmm. probably opening the door genetically, and I don't really know how to describe it, but uh, um, it at seven years old, having having that kind of dopamine hit whenever I wanted um, it wasn't good. And, and I had mm-hmm. no idea. And what that did was it opened the door for me to kind of explore and find other ways to, to change the way that I felt. And again, like it was like clockwork now looking back at it, all the stuff that happened after that. I, th- I think like, you know, two years later, I was obsessed with basketball. That was like my thing. Um, and I was, I was the, I think, second youngest person in my class and the second shortest. I don't remember. Robbie made some type of joke <laughs> in a previous episode about that. But, um, no, I, I was smaller than everybody else. I was younger than everybody else. Um, everybody at the school that I went to, I felt like um, had more money than I did. There was a sen- uh, there was an inferiority there that I was starting to feel and really didn't know what it was, but I had to compensate for it. And I did that on the basketball court or tried to. And, um, you know, I was a gym rat, played 24-7. I was, you know, my dad would drop me off at school an hour before school started and I would play basketball and then – after school, same thing, um, until they turn the lights off in the gym. So I, I got obsessed with basketball, and there was a little drugstore by our house, um, and my dad and I were in there one day, and I saw they had basketball cards behind the counter. And there was, uh, it was 1990, 89-90, it, it was David Robinson, I think his rookie year, and Michael Jordan was in his prime. And I knew that, you know, that, the packs cost a dollar, and the David Robinson and Michael Jordan cards may have been worth five. You could sell those for five or ten bucks. You know, I asked my dad to buy me a couple packs. I opened them up. There's no Michael Jordan, David Robinson. All right, I need two more. I need another one. I need another one. I need another one. Until I finally open one of those packs, and I see one of those cards, and it's like, boom, there goes the dopamine again. And mm-hmm. what... I didn't understand at the time is that I had literally, I'm being introduced to scratch off tickets at nine years old. It's like, I can buy this thing for a dollar. I can crack it open. And there's a chance that there's $10 in this thing. Right. So again, I don't know what's going on. Family doesn't know what's going on, but here's my brain getting primed again. And the genetics are unlocking underneath everything. So for a summer that just becomes a total obsession and I get locked in on this thing, and I gang up with another little friend of mine, also had the same, had the same <laughs> issue, and we come up with this plan, and, and I'm like 10 years old, and we come up with this plan. We start autographing these basketball cards, because there was an, a price guy that would have like players' autographs in them, and we would copy them and write them on the card, and we would take them to this local card shop and we would trade these fake autographed cards for um, boxes of unopened basketball cards. So we would sit in this card mm-hmm. shop all day on Saturdays and just rip these things open. And I amassed this like massive basketball card collection through fraudulent autographs. And like I can still do michael jordan's autograph like i can i I, like to this day and i know that there's been for for those of you out there listening that have autographed michael jordan cards at your in your safety deposit boxes that you bought at all stars at cotswold mall um there's a pretty big chance that i signed it when i was 10 years old and that thing is worth nothing um oh you just ruined some days right there i apologize um (laughs) and uh, that's my amends for for that one but, um, yeah, so, like, this thing got out of hand to the point where I ended up being on the cover of the Charlotte Observer's business page when I was, like, 11 years old as this, like, young entrepreneur. And um, they did this little article on me and my basketball card collection and how I'm I Thank God they didn't. I don't think they said anything about the autographed cards. Two years of that, and now I'm primed, you know, then I go into middle school. And sixth and seventh grade, seventh grade, um, you know, there were about five or six of us that would go to this one house on the weekends. Parents had a fridge full of beer. 
uh, didn't know what was going on. They had a huge house, and my friends were drinking. I wasn't the one that, that, that started it. And I was actually, I think, the last one that decided to partake and uh, felt the peer pressure. Next thing you know, I'm drinking hot ice house. And uh, <laughs> it was disgusting. Ugh. But I remembered, you know, I could drink a couple of them, and, you know, we were we were having a blast. And, um, you know, we did that on the weekends and started smoking cigarettes. And, and here's another way that I know how to change the way that I feel. So that continues to progress through through middle school. We're doing it on the weekends, no major consequences, playing basketball all the time. You know, I got this big social network, a bunch of friends. We're having a ton of fun, you know, doing normal kid stuff, except we're, you know, drinking two or three beers every night on Friday and Saturday and getting shit housed because we only weighed like 85 pounds. But yeah, that's how it started. And then uh, the summer after my eighth grade year, I was, uh, it was like a Saturday afternoon. My dad was at work. My parents were divorced by this time. Um, and, uh, which, you know, because of all the, the drinking and the social component, like it had an immediate impact on me, I think when it happened in sixth or seventh grade, but I was able to use those substances to cope with it relatively quickly. And, you know, because my dad worked more than my mom it it, my dad's place was like the easy place to get away with that and they didn't know what was going on they had no clue that this was happening um so it was like kind of let me let me go to the spot that has the least resistance and um and and that'll be a place where I can you know do whatever I want and that's kind of what happened and I spent a lot of time on the weekends over there and you know he would be at work and I'd sit there and you know my friends would come over and we'd drink beer and one day I went it was like a Saturday afternoon and I'm sitting there drinking with a buddy of mine and um my dad had just had knee surgery uh, probably six months prior and there was a bottle of Percocet sitting on a windowsill in the kitchen Uh, probably it was never touched and uh, and the kid that I was with happened to, he was a couple years older than me and lived in the neighborhood and grabbed the bottle and was like, hey, man, have you ever taken these before? And the crazy thing is, is that if I didn't already have like two beers in my system and my inhibitions were, were down, I probably would have been like, hell no, dude, I'll, I'm, I'm not touching those things. I don't know what's in them. Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't have that defense. And he was like, here, dude, take take a couple. Of the, the, you'll, you'll feel great. And I had no idea what it was. You know, I popped two of those things in my mouth and took a swig of the old English 40 that we somebody stole from the gas station. <laughs> and um, and I remember those things. I, I was I was laying laying on the couch. I had the remote control in my hand. I was flipping through the channels. And when when they kicked in. I dropped the remote on my chest and the TV channel stopped on QVC and there was a guy selling Beanie Babies. And I remember laying there for the next three hours watching this dude try to sling Beanie Babies. And I rem- I'll never forget this. I'll- I remember thinking to myself that I did not want to move my hands to pick up the remote control because I felt so good, and I didn't want mm. to, like, break that feeling. So I just laid there, like, completely still. And uh, and I remember thinking to myself, like, I want to feel like this all the time. And this was 1996, so it was before the whole, like, throw your pills away campaign, the whole before the whole opioid epidemic. So everybody's medicine cabinet was filled with pills. Um, I had never mm-hmm. stolen anything my entire life. And I started like raiding people's medicine cabinets, yeah. like ninth grade. And I started, you know, I started buying weed, and um, you know, I was I sold some weed, and I would kind of like make deals with people at school, like, hey, like, you know, if you want some weed, I'll, I'll get, I'll sell you some, or I'll give you some, but you gotta let me come over to your house after school and look through your medicine cabinets. And I started taking these pills like every day. Like all day long, and I had no idea what the consequences were, or that you know I could withdraw from these things. Or it was great because I didn't have to drink, I didn't have to smoke. You couldn't smell them, you couldn't really tell that I was on them, 
And I wasn't one of those people that they were more like performance enhancing drugs for me. It was like, Mm -hmm. I felt like a million bucks. It washed all the fear away. I was like this social butterfly. I could, you know, talk to anybody. they, They made me fearless. And I didn't look like, I mean, some people may beg to differ, but at that point, I didn't really, you couldn't really tell that I was on them. They kind of almost made me manic. And, uh, but I felt like a million bucks constantly. And, you know, and I pretty much carried that habit all the way through high school. And, you know, I was, so my freshman year comes up. Um, again, I'm obsessed with basketball. And I get cut from the JV basketball team my freshman year. And it absolutely crushed me. Because mm-hmm. uh, that was like all of my identity was basketball. So my identity shift shifted from basketball to drugs. And I became, you know, I took pride in, oh, you know, I got all, you know, I can get all the drugs. I can, you know, I know all the people that can get all the drugs. And, like, that that became, like, I thought it was cool. You know, I was trying to sell stuff and not even making any money. Like, it was just, like, I did it for, you know, because for the attention. And, oh, yeah, Patrick's cool. Yeah. And, and all it did, it just drove my addiction. And, you know, we continued to drink and smoke weed. And I'm eating these pills all day long. And... Pretty much kept it together for the most part through high school, but academics totally out the window. Like, I think I graduated with a 2.0, and that was probably a generous 2.0 just to, like, make sure that I didn't have to come back for another year. <laughs> so I get cut from the basketball team, and then after that it was like, I don't care. I don't give a shit about anything. Um, let's, just, let's just party. And that's kind of what happened. I my way through high school like that and had a lot of fun. So I graduate, and I somehow with the help of um, a couple guidance counselors, figure out this, like, loophole to get into NC State because I got flat-out denied. And uh, there was some way where you could go in there and take classes, um, as you know, as like as if you were an adult and you wanted to go back to school. So I took – so this is, like, the worst possible scenario for somebody with a drug problem is like all right let's send you to college and you're only going to take two classes for semester your freshman year (laughs) so so i go up there with zero responsibility and like it's like i'm taking an english and math class that like you know that i already took in high school it was crazy i had you know i'm living in this dorm we're partying constantly i'm not i don't have to go to class join a fraternity and that was just wild yeah, and it just continued to progress, and all of my time was spent drinking and using, and it was and it was a blast. I was just avoiding responsibility at all at, at all costs, you know. And I I did that for a couple of years and skated by with school until you know I, in my freshman year I I there was a kid that lived in the dorm below me that worked at Eckerd Pharmacy in Cameron Village in Raleigh and. Uh, he was stealing Oxycontins from the pharmacy, and this was the begin. This is like right when they came out, and I had no idea what they were. I had a pretty high tolerance to painkillers and dependence on them because I'd been taking them for the last four years. And this guy comes into my dorm room like two weeks into my freshman year and like throws a freaking bottle on my bed, and um, of a, a it was a sealed bottle of 40 milligram oxycontins. There were a hundred of them. And he's like, "Be careful with these things. They're really strong." And um, and I popped I popped one, and I was like, "Oh, this is perfect," mm-hmm. you know. And then and then he got busted and or you know got fired, and um, and then I met like a couple other people in Raleigh who were like doctor shopping and getting oxys and. And then they got busted, and then I'm like, I have this massive tolerance to, to these things, and I have no idea what to do, and I get, like, really, really sick for the first time. And um, it, it freaked me out. And I called this guy that I used to get high with back in Charlotte, and he's like, yeah, you should, uh, you should just go to the methadone clinic. And you can take methadone for, like, a week until the opiates get out of your system, and then you'll be fine. And this was before, you know, the internet barely existed. Like, uh, there was no way to research any of this stuff. I just wanted to feel better. So I go to this methadone clinic in Raleigh, and they give me this stuff, and it 
makes me not sick anymore. And kind of got me a little high. And it lasted for like 24 hours. So I'm like, all right, this is perfect. Now I don't have to spend any money. I can just go and take this stuff every day. And then I figured out, you know, at this particular place, you know, and again, this was 20 years ago. All I have to do is tell them that I don't feel good and they'll bump my dose up. And then I also, you know, started using cocaine. And one of the guys that we used to buy cocaine from had like a methadone connection. And now I'm like eating eating these pills on top of my regular dose that's being prescribed from a doctor and uh, it was just a total mess it was a total recipe for disaster so grades plummet I continue to party um, end up failing out of school you know went through a really bad breakup with a girl that I was dating for a long time at this point I, I'm just a total mess I mean I'm I'm using cocaine you know probably six out of the seven days out of the week you know, drinking all day long, and and I'm on this, like, pretty high dose of a really heavy sedative narcotic, and uh, so I go through this breakup, and I decide to come back to Charlotte and go back and work for the family business, and uh, that Mm -hmm. did not work out well. All this shame with failing out of school, Um, you know, all my friends are starting to graduate. They all got their stuff together. They're getting jobs, and I'm back in Charlotte. And uh, with this, you know, massive drug problem that I'm just feeding into and um, with with really no hope of the possibility of it ending. It's like I I had no insight or no awareness to it being a problem because I was so entrenched in my addiction that it was it would get totally consumed me. My parents. you know, they kind of get wind of what's going on once I get back in town and they actually have eyes on me for a significant amount of time. And uh, and my family starts to get concerned. And what I would do is I would pay attention to how I looked physically. And I would try to, you know, I would get it together for for weeks at a time, maybe tone down my use a little bit to where they get off my back. You know, that I had a family friend that was a, you know, long time member of AA. You know, I'd go to a meeting with him, be like, Oh yeah, I'm going to AA. Like everything's good. And then I'd ramp it back up again once they were off my back. And it was, it was totally out of control the whole time. The winter of 2009, my family staged an intervention at this point, you know, I'm on this ridiculously high dose of opioids. I am. I progressed from using cocaine to to smoking crack. Uh, I'm I'm drinking vodka like a fish, and um, I'm just physically, I'm a total mess. Emotionally, I was so checked out that I wasn't even able to gauge mm-hmm. like, you know, that this was not good or it was not going to end well. <laughs> I was totally in the grips, and they staged an intervention and put me in a. 28-day program out in Monroe that was a part of uh, Carolina's healthcare system, and uh, I, I manipulated my way out after 24 days around Christmas time, and with every intention walking out of that place of never putting another substance in my body again, like gung-ho, I'm going to AA, I'm going to do this, like, I mean, if I had a million bucks in my bank account, I would have bet all of it on the fact that I was never going to put another substance in my body. With, without sure. without question. And I was high within two weeks. Yeah. And um, I went on another run for about a year and a half, and it got really, really ugly. I was smoking black tar heroin, smoking crack all day long. It, it just it, it got really, really dark to the point where I was staying up for two or three days at a time. And my parents, they had no clue what to do with me. They're, it, at, at that point... Um, you know, recovery and, and the stigma around addiction. Like, yeah, there was AA. Like, I didn't even know that before I went to First Step, I didn't even know that, like, detoxes or rehabs even existed. It wasn't, like, a part of our culture at that point, or at least I didn't know it was. It got to the point where I weighed, you know, I weigh 180 pounds right now. I think I weighed 125 pounds when I checked into treatment the second time. I had open sores all over my body from, like, picking at my skin and, um, I was in a cocaine psychosis, and how I ended up in treatment the second time was that guy, that uh, the AA member that was a good family friend, just happened to show up at the right right place and right time, and I was, like, sitting on a 
sitting on my dad's couch in his condo, um, coming down off, uh, off of Coke and, um, had been up for a couple of days and he came and knocked on the door. And I remember getting up, looking through the peephole, sitting back down on the couch and this little voice in my head said, Patrick, if you don't open that door, you're going to die. And, mm-hmm. um, and I probably wouldn't have lasted another two or three weeks just because my body was like shutting down. And, uh, and I opened the door and he just looked at me and was like, you ready to go? And he pulled up this treatment center on his iPad and, you know, I was on a plane three days later. I stayed in treatment for 90 days, went to sober living for another uh, 90 after that. And I haven't used since. And that was June 20th. I think I got out of detox June 23rd, 2011. To this day, I cannot, you know, obviously I work in the field now and I've worked in rehabs and um, I've been around the stuff a lot. And I don't think I've met or seen anybody that like actually surrendered to the idea of recovery as much as I did in the beginning. Like I did not, when I finally got like a good night's sleep, like 30 days in, um, Mm -hmm. I, I did not want to have anything to do with the terror that I had just experienced like the five years prior to that. I, I, I was like, I will do anything not to go back to that. I always get scared when I have a client that surrenders to that degree because I know that that means the darkness has been so vast yeah. that there's just not another option. That's what the therapists told me at the treatment. They were like, there's no way this kid is, this is this has to be bullshit. And I was like, no, right. like I'll do anything. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, they, they talk about in like, in like AA and 12-step recovery and stuff that like, you know, spiritual awakening is key and like you need to do all this stuff to experience that. Like the second I got that first night's sleep, I was mm-hmm. wide awake. Like, I mean, it, it, it mm-hmm. was, I was a whole new man at that point. I knew that the book and that chapter of my life was over. And that I had an opportunity to take this clean slate. Thank God to like my like my family for like sticking by me this whole time, and like still loving me unconditionally and giving me everything that I needed to like have a successful shot at, at recovery. Um, even the ability to pay for treatment. Um, yeah. You know, and thank God I still had all that intact. So I had like this this like ripe fertile ground to like really have a successful you know springboard to jump off of I took advantage of it and I I can't like take credit for that it was like all that pain is pretty much what what gave me the the motivation and the strength to you know engage the way that I did but I took everything like super seriously I mean my I I remember Mm -hmm. you know when I when I got out of treatment living in that in that halfway house, like there was a, um, a 12 step meeting, like, you know, half a mile from the halfway house. And at this point I was working as a valet attendant at Boca resort and I was working second shift three to 11. And, uh, I would ride, I would ride the bus from my halfway house to Boca resort. I would work from three to 11. I would get, catch a ride home with somebody. I'd get off, you know, I'd get home around midnight. I'd shower, I'd eat something, I'd go to bed and I'd wake up at 6.30, roll over, throw a hat on and go to this 7 a.m. 12-step meeting every single day. I mean, it met, it met seven days a week. I would go there. I would get together with my sponsor, maybe have breakfast. Sometimes we'd go to a 10 a.m. meeting. Sometimes we'd go to a 12.30 meeting. Um, I'd go home, I'd take a nap, shower and catch the bus to work. And that's what I did for like my first like nine months in recovery. Like I Mm -hmm. was fully immersed in, I mean, everything that I did was recovery related. And I think these are the pieces that are really important to cover because I think, you know, you spelled it out perfectly when you said the first time you got sober, got out of treatment, there's the full intention of staying sober. Like there, there's no desire in you to use. There's no, but that's just not enough to stay sober. And if it is, it, it can yeah. be sobriety temporarily, but it's certainly not recovery. And I think those are the pieces of your story that are so powerful of just 
all of the work that you did do to enter a life of recovery that's different than just being able to hang on and stay sober that day. Can you talk a little bit just about some of the discoveries that you made along the way that were really important components for your life in recovery? The first big realization that that I had and I and this happened to me in treatment and I don't know like I can't pinpoint like why this happened but I came across this realization that, that like I had absolutely no clue what was going on. I had no idea how to live as a functional adult in society. I had no idea how to be responsible. I had no I I didn't have a clue how to do anything. What I also realized is not only did I not have a clue, I had I didn't know anything. Like I had no structure psychologically to really come up with a, a good reason to live. I had no purpose. I had no meaning in my life. I had no, you know, I had no values. I had no plans of what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I liked. I didn't know, you know, I had no clue where I wanted to go. And you were how old? I was 28 years old. Yeah. Except I had, I, the only thing that I did know is that I did not want to go back to the way I was living. Right. Um, but what that did is it opened me up to learning all kinds of really cool new stuff that I didn't know existed. Um, it like opened my mind and I was very fortunate. You know, I mean, the 12 step thing was was great in the beginning, but even like Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, like there's a quote in a book called As Bill Sees It, where he says that AA is spiritual kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Like it's just the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky that I had a couple teachers and mentors early on in my recovery that made a re- made that a really, you know, really solid point. I was like, dude, there's so much more that you haven't even come close to exploring yet. And it's, and it's there for the taking. Once I started feeling better and started to realize that, you know, there was a lot of information out there that could open my mind and my heart and help me feel better. I just like, I went nuts. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I don't think I read, I don't think I read a chapter in a book like my entire life until I got sober. Yeah. Like I just, I never, it, reading wasn't a thing. Like I couldn't pay attention. It was, uh, I didn't want to engage. Um, but once I found something that I felt was valuable into helping me get out of this hellhole. Um, I just, I I went crazy and it it got to the point, like for my first, like even my first, like three years sober, I mean, I was reading spiritual recovery related literature, probably three or four hours a day. I mean, any kind of downtime I had, my face was in a book and thank Mm -hmm. God this was before, you know, uh, iPhones and, and all that crap. I mean, I guess iPhones existed, but it wasn't like my face wasn't glued to it constantly. Yeah. I took that very seriously and I started studying all kinds of stuff. You know, the 12 step programs opened me up to this, you know, idea of self-awareness and self-exploration and redemption. And, um, you know, I kind of, I cleaned up my side of the street, figured out kind of you know, my assets and liabilities and how to balance those things appropriately. And then I dove into like all kinds of like crazy meditation stuff. And, you know, I studied Buddhism and, and a couple different sects of Hinduism and, um, you know, Taoism. We really went a lot around the Eastern philosophy route and uh, read all kinds of cool stuff and listened to all kinds of neat teachers talk and went on some meditation retreats and I was really lucky to have some awesome teachers in South Florida um, during my early recovery. I did all kinds of like we would do these like shamanic journeys and lots of Native American and Central and South American stuff. Did mm-hmm. a lot of really neat things that I was never exposed. I didn't even know they existed. I didn't know right. these philosophies existed. I didn't know these ways of looking at the world existed. Um but it, it gave me a psychological structure to start working from, piecing together um, my values and um, and really my worldview. And what did you start to discover about who you were and what you liked? That's a tough topic to wrap words around. 
Well, because it's ongoing, yeah. right? It's not yeah, a, a, a one-time it, event. But I think early in recovery, like you said, you start to get exposed to so many of these other things where if you have no clue what you like and you have no idea who you are, it's like you get to start to create it rather than find it. One of the most interesting parts about recovery is that like this, this whoever you thought you were needs to be deconstructed first. Yeah. It almost bring, it brought me to a point of like emptiness. And like, I had this like clean slate. It was like, do I exist? Do I not? And it, it, I don't want to get too philosophical, but, um, there's kind of like two levels to it for me. There's like this spiritual, like philosophical idea of who I am. Mm -hmm. It like this idea of like, I'm pure consciousness. I'm awareness. I'm, I'm experience, experiencing itself and unfolding every moment but then there's the individual level like yeah my name's patrick balsley and i live on planet earth and you know um i'm right. a father and a husband and a friend and a member of the community like that so it's it's hard to discern mm -hmm. between those two levels and i went back and forth for a long time i'm like you know am i and this was actually a thought of mine in early recovery is like am i do i want to move to tibet and live in a cave and meditate all day or you know do i right. want to plant my feet flat on the ground and live in this world and you yeah. know obviously i chose the latter and and here we are but like a, a lot of those you know philosophical beliefs and and experiences it, it's it's given me a solid root of peace in my life to where that mm -hmm. it, no matter what's going on in this physical world that I'm living in, I can always sit back in that and respite and, and relax. And it's, it's, you know, it's, you can align that with faith too, in a sense. Right. It's like, I have this, this kind of underlying structure of, of where I can sit back and just kind of watch everything unfold. Um, which is really powerful. When I hear you talk about your um, it being an active addiction, I just the words emotional unavailability mm -hmm. come to mind. You know, like you're just so checked out and you're so unavailable to yourself and to others. And can you talk a little bit about what relationships became and how they started to develop once you were emotionally available? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this kind of comes back to the idea of like, having this clean slate and uh, like I was so like alive and and grateful to be alive during the beginning of my recovery that like I didn't there there was not there was not a lot of wanting going on it was like I was so present and mm -hmm. like just wide awake and paying attention to everything and because of the environment that I was in being in South Florida, the like rehab capital of the world, there's all these people around me that are hurting and suffering. I'm like swallowing this like spiritual literature at like a crazy rate. So I got all this stuff that I want to just like spit out and share and, and give to people. And that became my life. I mean, for the first, yeah. like, you know, few years of my recovery, that's all I did. It wasn't about, okay, what what do I want to do for a career? What do I want to do for my family? Like, you know, all this stuff. Like, the only thing I did, I was like, I played basketball sometimes, but the rest of my time was was spent, you know, in meetings, working with other guys, going back to the treatment center that I went to and like picking kids up and taking them to meetings and building these relationships. But it was like everywhere I looked, I could see people hurting. Um, and yeah. I could see people that needed help. And it was impossible for me at that time not to engage in that. And through that, I started building these like amazing relationships with people because I was meeting them in these like really vulnerable states. I was able to share with them you know, what I had just been through, how vulnerable I was, you know, and the bonds and the connections made through that honest and vulnerable communication, it's stronger than anything you'll ever experience. Um, right. And I started to see the value in it because I saw that I was giving people hope by sharing my experience with them. I was getting better through that. And I was meeting all these really awesome people that, kind of lived the same way that I lived that we're now moving into this life of discovery and recovery 
and building lives for themselves. So it was just this really neat thing to be a part of. And I realized at that point, I was like, I'm going to, why would I not want to do this the rest of my life? And, Mm -hmm. you know, at nine months sober, I started working in a treatment center. I don't know. I probably had 11 months sober and uh, started working in a treatment center as a behavioral health tech. And, you know, I, I was like so eager to learn, you know, I would sit with the therapists. I would sit in on groups and just like, you know, just like a sponge. And I would have these conversations yeah. with some of the therapists about some of the philosophies or some of the things that they were presenting to the clients. And, and my mind would just, you know, I'd stay up at night thinking about, all right, how can I make this better? How, how can we connect with these people that, that aren't, um, you know, that aren't buying into what you're selling? Because yeah. that was one of the main issues that I saw early on was that there were some major barriers to people getting better. That you know the whole God thing in the twelve-step world was a major barrier. The whole idea that you had to admit that you were an alcoholic or an addict was a major barrier. Yeah, I mean they, they were like non-starters for a lot of people. So like I yep. became obsessed with all right, how do we remove these barriers so we can kind of help people wherever they're at? And I tried to apply all this like philosophical and spiritual stuff to be able to do that. And then I leveraged, you know, my ability to connect with people through my experience. And, you know, I got with some teachers and some, some other, you know, therapists and down there. And one of my mentors and I came up with, with like this kind of, you know, I don't, I don't want to call it a recovery program, but essentially we, we, we revamped the, the essence of the step process yeah, or, or we extracted the essence of the step process and kind of took out the whole God piece and the whole you got to be an alcoholic or addict piece um, and made it more right. about health and wellness, about, all right, let's figure out what you want, how how we're going to get there, and let's remove everything from your life that's stopping you, um, which is essentially what the 12 steps yeah. does. So I just got I got obsessed with the process, and, and I got encouraged to go back to school, became a counselor, and got hired immediately in an outpatient program down in Florida. You know, they gave me like one client at a time, and I would immediately go into supervision afterwards, and <laughs> dissect my session, and make sure I wasn't hurting anybody. And um, and that's how it went for like six months. And I was I was so lucky. I got I was just surrounded by these really talented clinicians um, in a mm-hmm. v- relatively new organization. You know, they were in it for the right reasons. They wanted to create you know, a a culture and a place for people to heal. And um, they were in recovery and it was just really cool. And, uh, and then it kind of went on from there and I helped open another program that they opened and um, I didn't do much to, to help, but I was just kind of there and uh, was lucky to be a part of it and, uh, and worked in primary treatment for about three and a half years and then decided that it was time to go out on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, I was lucky enough, Steve Scanlon, Dr. Scanlon, that was on episode two, Champagne on the Brain, um, he kind of took me under his wing, and I worked at his office for a while and um, and built my private practice as I was, you know, doing some groups and um, for treatment centers and teaching mindfulness and teaching meditation and um, just kind of built, built a book of practice around that and uh, was very, very lucky that things worked out the way that they did professionally. I'm always so impressed by, and one of the reasons I've always referred to you or worked with you with clients is the, your ability to inspire people to want something more and better and to like bottle, like you, you're able to bottle up that wide awakeness that you experienced from such deep pain. You're able to bottle it up and teach people how to access that without the pain part, (laughs) without having to experience what you did. And I think that piece is so beautiful when folks are stuck Mm -hmm. and and that doesn't have to be an active addiction. I think it's any spectrum of people suffering or using things to make them feel different. You're the one that always comes to mind who can really help inspire like I'm not going to be here to sit here and tell you what is wrong about what you're doing. I just want to help paint the picture that there's hope of so much more for you. And here's what it could look like. And here's how we could do it. And I'm curious for you, just how do you, 
do you think about that consciously? Is it something that you are just able to kind of naturally do in the way that you work with clients? Or do you really intentionally kind of bottle that up and speak it into how do you become wide awake and mindful in relationships and work in your life? And how do you grow? I've just always been so curious about how that has developed for you over time through like coming from your personal story and really shining through in your professional work. Yeah, I'm kind of like a mutt. Like I, 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 <laughs> I, I use all these different like therapeutic modalities and, and come from all these di- different like theoretical places. But like I was having a conversation with, with my buddy Trip Johnson from Green Hill a couple weeks ago and we were talking about this and I was like, dude, I don't know what I do. I was like, people come into my office, they say some stuff. And then something comes out. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know, like it doesn't, it's just, it's like this organic process for me. It's like, all I do is I just try to be as wide open as possible. And I try to listen to people. Um, But it's like, and I don't want to sound cheesy, but like I do it from my heart. It's like. You live it. I'm not like dissecting or like analyzing. and, And it's just like. It's like I have all this information that I've gathered over the last 10 years um, that I've read or experienced. And then it's like synthesized inside me in in a way to where when people come to me or they try to articulate what's going on with them, whatever's inside (laughs) of me just responds to that somehow. And I've always been a pretty optimistic guy my entire life. And there's been... You know, when it when it comes to the idea of like inspiration, mm-hmm. like I, I'm a, a pretty big believer in the idea that everybody is suffering to some degree. Mm-hmm. If you're honest with yourself, you can admit to the fact that your life could be better than it is. Yeah. Or you know, and I've talked about. I think I talked about this with Robbie on the spirituality episode. But if you really want to be honest, like you could be a better human being than than you're being. <laughs> um. You know, and yeah. my, and I have to remind myself that every day it's like it's like, dude, there's so much. There's more to life, and when you when you talk about relationships, um, you know, I mean, that's everything to me. Yeah, I think that's the that's the thing is it's the reason it feels so bottled up from your kind of quote unquote spiritual awakening is because you continue to live it and you continue to practice it. And that's what I think really shines through in, in your work and your relationships. Like even just in conversations when we have coffee, like that's what it feels like is you still live this and you really still try to practice this on a daily basis and so I, it, it's almost like you don't have to teach it because you're just modeling it anyway. Like no matter what comes out of your mouth, you're still modeling that you think that you could be a better human and you're going to try to do that today. It's almost, I was going to ask, one of my questions for you is just like, what is your, you know, what do you want your legacy to be? And I'm not going to decide that for you. But if I had to, I'd be like, this is your legacy. Like you bottling it up and living it and sharing it with others is like, that's the tangible piece of my relationship with you. But for you, is there an intentional thing that you really want people to have, you know, shared about you, say about you, like the legacy that you kind of want to leave behind? Like almost like brings tears to my eyes because I never really think about this, but like, you know, I, I'm in this. I'm 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 just really fortunate to be invited to this like mentorship group that I'm doing. Right, it's actually this entire year um, that I'm in with some really awesome people. And um, our like last month's meeting, it was just on Monday night, and it was all about purpose mm-hmm. and and what your purpose is as a as a you know as a human. We had to read this really cool book, and I suggest it to anybody that wants to really kind of figure that out in their life or maybe add some new direction. It's called The On-Purpose Person, and that was the book that we read this month. And, you know, and I had to, I had to come up with a, with a purpose statement. It was one of our assignments, and it was out of this book. And it was structured as, I exist to serve by dot, dot, dot. Mm. And, and I, had to, I had to answer that question in two words. Oh, wow. And... And the best thing that I could come up with was this idea of that I exist to serve by by honoring connection. And I think that that's kind of what I do best is is 
like we're all connected and on the you know deepest level and you know you can think about that like the woo woo like mm-hmm. you know energetically oh, we're all one we're yeah. all con- yeah we're all connected like like conceptually yeah but like for some reason i i, I feel that um you know experience experientially um on a on a pretty high level i mean i i can engage with anybody mm-hmm. that you know and and be with them for a couple minutes and feel my connection to them um and and vice versa i think so like that's probably what I would want my legacy to be is like, you know, you know, that, that guy made me, you know, feel better than I did before, you know, I came into contact with him. Yeah. But like right now we have a big problem in our culture, in our society. Um, I mean, there, there are kids, kids dying at an alarming rate and the drugs on the street are extremely potent and dangerous and they're everywhere and it's really freaking scary Mm -hmm. and it's really really sad and all of this stuff could be prevented and that's kind of like where I want to focus all my attention and my energy and if I can do that by modeling recovery great Mm -hmm. and but like I mean I still beat the shit out of myself you know on a daily basis of like dude you could do so much more than you're doing yeah and a lot of it has to do with with structuring my time and focusing my attention on the pieces that really matter um, and that are aligned with my values. and and But, like, in order to make a, the type of change that we need to make, like, I got to do it in my family first, mm-hmm. you know. And then if that happens, we move out to the community, which we're doing with this podcast in a sense. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're giving people information and hopefully creating a space where they have enough courage to you know, have some tough conversations within their family or within their relationships or community. But we are still at, like, the infancy of this thing. Yeah. We have a major substance use problem in our culture. Yeah. It gets really, really bad. I mean, if you really want to, I mean, it starts with, you know, there's sugar, there's freaking, you know, I mean. Anything that makes us feel different. It's everywhere. Like, this is a cultural issue. It's a, it's. You know, and and I think we have a long way to go at, at really articulating what we're dealing with because we pay so much attention to the substances and the and you know, oh, this is bad, oh, that's bad. Well, how what's really bad is the fact that we got a whole bunch of people that are trying to check out. Right. I think that leads perfectly into you know we ask all of the guests that we have on the podcast. Um, to kind of wrap up, we asked them all this one question and, and I'm so interested to hear your answer to it. Cause I think you just led perfectly into it. Just what, if you were to encourage our listeners to ask themselves one question about their journey and get curious, what would it be? This is really tough. There's a bunch of different stuff that comes to mind. I mean, I love your, your, your yeah. legacy question. Like, I, I think that's a great question. I mean, like our, our, are are you being the person that you want, you know, people to remember you as? You know, I think that's a really, really solid question. Yeah. I mean, I can't really answer that one thing. I mean, I, I, I want to say, like, who are you? You know, it's like. <laughs> yeah, but I think that you're the, the legacy goes with it, right? It's I think that's the perfect answer for you because that's what you live. That's. That's how you live. That's how you interact with others. Or just are you being... Yeah, I mean, are you being the best version yeah, of... Uh, who you want to be. Yeah. I mean, are, are you being yeah. the best version of yourself that, that you could be? Yeah. And what pockets can you get curious about yeah. if the answer is no, right? It's, I mean, it's the whole, that's the whole journey. Patrick, I think this has always been important to me and I can't wait to continue to do some of these kind of deeper dives because I think when people are able to share all the intimate kind of details about their journey and share what really works for them today and what they really keep close to their heart and what they consider on a daily basis, we really start to break open that connection, right? Like that's what helps us feel like we're connected to other humans. We share the same stories. We share the same struggles. And I'm just really excited that our listeners have gotten, you know, that peek through the window into your story because it's something that I admire a lot about you. Thank you. Yeah, this is this has been nice. I I think I think that connection piece is you know something that I always try to pay attention to is like how much time am I spending talking to myself in my head compared to yeah. how much 
time am I spending engaged in life? And when I say life, I'm talking about actually paying attention to what's going on. Because um, mm-hmm. that's where the, you know, that's where the fruit is. Like, we can sit up in our yeah. heads and think about all kinds of shit and ruminate and come up with all these plans and, you know, wants and desires, and then we talk ourselves out of it or we get stuck. There's There's something really... I don't even know how to say this, but like if I can have the intention of just being being open to what is happening in front of me and and I can pay attention mm-hmm. to people that I'm in a relationship with and I to me that's everybody that I you know anybody that I come into contact with through that like intention and attention like good stuff always comes from that because that's where that connection right. happens and if we can just pay attention to the things that are going on around us a little bit more. You know, I think that's that's where the where the magic happens. Well, hopefully our listeners feel a little more connected to your story and there's your takeaway for today, guys. Just get connected, get engaged, be present in the moment and you'll pretty much always be gifted with the return. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. Yeah. Appreciate you. Thanks, ya. Sam. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.